Welcome to the AAOP podcast. This is the podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I am Tom Weber. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Eric Schiffman. Dr. Schiffman is professor of, and director of clinical research at the University of Minnesota School of Dentistry. He is a diplomate of the American Board of Orofacial Pain with over 35 years of experience treating orofacial pain patients. Dr. Schiffman has received over $17 million in National Institutes of Health funding and has published over 60 peer-reviewed papers, 12 book chapters, as well as three patents. Dr. Schiffman, thank you very much for joining us on the AAOP podcast today. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you, my understanding is that at some point in your history, you were a student of philosophy, maybe as an undergrad, and that piqued my interest. I wanted to know, uh, has your background in philosophy influenced your practice in orofacial pain or your research? And if so, how? Well, um, as a matter of fact, in my second year of undergrad, I was a philosophy major and rather enjoyed classic um, as well as um, other forms of, of, of um philosophy, especially existentialistic. But, um, and how does that influence me? Well, what it, I did a lot of, I took courses on logic and other things. And what it really, I think it made me do was to question the status quo, to, to look at things differently and to think about what are other options and not just accept things um, as they appear to be. But then I got philosophical about it and decided I wasn't going to make a lot of money at it. And I, um, then I went on to uh, a couple other and then ended up in dentistry. And here you are now. I, I, I would like to hear a little more about that. I, I, I'm always curious how dentists come into orofacial pain. I, I think it's safe to say that most of us don't go into dentistry with the idea that we're going to come out at the other end of this doing orofacial pain practice. Um, so how did you come into orofacial pain as a career? Well, you know, I graduated in 1982, and most of the people listening probably weren't alive yet. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, when I got done with dental school, I, I went up to uh, Minneapolis, where I've stayed ever since, and went to Hennepin County Medical Center and did a GPR and was going to be an oral surgeon. Um, Learned a lot, was in the ER every third night, and um, decided uh, blood and alcohol at three in the morning is not for me. Uh, so I moved on. And, but during that time, I took a course from Dr. Jim Frickton, uh, who's been very influential over my career. And I um, took a course on chronic pain. And also, um, I had already taken some, I took extra courses in dental school, I'm one of them, and in hypnosis and other things, and all of a sudden it all kind of collided, and I thought, pain, this is philosophical. This is a latent variable. I'm back to my roots. And so since I always, from the first time I went into college, I wanted to be a professor and never leave the university, I just decided that, hey, this is kind of interesting. And so I went up to Jim and said to him, do you have a residency program? And he said, no. And I said, why don't you make me your first resident? And I became the first resident. And that was in 83. And uh, so the reason why I did it was because, one, I thought that it would be a good field, a new field, 
um, to get into. I knew that research would be good and easier because I could pick the low hanging um, fruit and because basic things wouldn't be known. And, uh, and then I had a wonderful mentor when Jim, and uh, he actually taught me how to uh, get grants. He's exceptionally good at it. And uh, so I, I, I thank him for that. So anyway, I went into it also because I just thought, why not help people get out of pain instead of putting them in it? So that brings me to a question about uh, one of the studies that you've done. So speaking of your, uh, your inquisitive nature and not wanting to simply accept things as they are and to investigate, the, to try to find the real story, uh, I'll tell you one of the papers that you are a primary author on that I uh, have used probably in almost every orofacial pain setting or course that I've been a part of teaching uh, is a 2007 study that was published in the Journal of Dental Research on four therapeutic strategies for painful closed lock. Mm -hmm. Uh, That paper to me has been uh, so useful and is really, I think, foundational to to my thinking about orofacial pain treatment. So I'd be grateful if you could share with us kind of how that study came to be. What, What is the background of that? How did you determine the need for a study like that? Uh, and then if you could maybe go into uh, a little bit about how the study design was conceived, I would love to hear about that. Okay, well, if I don't hit all the points, come back at me on it. Um, the study itself was based on the fact that you have to remember, um, we conceived it in the late 80s. Um, and at that time, disc was everything. At that time, you either repositioned someone permanently and got that disc back in place, or you went in and did surgery. And uh, if not, they were going to end up with arthritis. And so that was kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying, but there was a lot of belief in there. There was other philosophies going on, occlusion, et cetera. But that, that was a dominant one, and surgery was at its zenith. And um, so anyway, I thought to myself, gee, we're all doing surgery on these people, But then I reflected back on my master's thesis. My master's thesis was to examine, I think it was 249 uh, female nursing students, rather enjoyable study. And um, I found out that, gee, there was a lot of people out there with clicking and popping and all these other things. And 67% of them had no problem. I was like, what the heck is that about? Also, at the time, I I had two two, uh, people teaching me clinically. One was Jim Frickton. And in all due respect, and I'm simplifying, he would see a patient, and that was a muscle pain patient. And I was with John Schulte, and I thought it was the same. It was a different day, but I thought it was the same patient. And that was a joint patient. And you had to go in and do all this stuff, um, permanently reposition them, get their teeth back together afterwards, phase one and two, and all that good stuff. And I thought, hmm, this is awful interesting, because it was almost like a randomized clinical trial. And... um, so after I, I kind of was thinking, you know, jeepers, um, it seems to me that this is kind of an adaptable joint. And so I thought, why don't we do a study where we randomize people that have the worst problem? Because you remember, you don't got much time. These things are expensive. So you, you, when you look at the, the whole lack of knowledge, 
you, I usually would go either to self-care, the least amount of treatment, or look at the most. Because if, if the most isn't, uh, if you're looking at these different levels and you don't need the most, that would be useful. So anyway, I, I um, thought, okay, why don't we go ahead and, uh, because clinically, Dennis Haley, who was the second resident in, in the program, and I were treating a lot of these patients with just kind of get their, their disc further forward, we thought, and doing some other things. So I got together the group, and um, I was the one that did the first group, which was medical management. And I was giving them self-care and short-term medications. Medro dose pack with a little ibuprofen after that. If you want some cyclobenzaprine, you got it. Um, sec- and, and I was the only one that believed in that one. And we had to believe in them. I mean, believe. So that we, the patient, when we explained it to them, would really understand it. And, and the set, in fact, I'll explain how I explained it to the patient. I said to him, well, the first group is that you heal yourself. The second group is we're going to do the same self-care, but we're also going to give you a physical therapy, um, um, a splint, because those were standard at those times. And at the same time, we're going to have you see the health psychologist. And the theory here is you can heal yourself, but you need a little help. The third group is arthroscopic. Uh, that's where you're going to have immediate arthroscopic surgery because the surgeons insisted if you wait around, it ain't going to work. And so immediate arthroscopic, and they would go in, and, and then afterwards they saw the physical therapist and health psychologist because we ruled out psychopathology in these individuals. We, we didn't want that as a complicating comorbid condition. And, um, and then you would have arthroscopic, and then you would have what we call rehab, that second group. Um, and um, the vast majority of them also got a split, but saw the physical therapist, sales psychologist. I can go into details, but we're not going to, I don't think. Third group was, you gotta put the disc back in place. You gotta repair that baby. And if you don't, you're gonna get arthritis. It's already failed. We gotta fix it. I said, those are the theories. And, um, uh, one of the interesting things is the ethics of this. And uh, in order to do that, before I went to the IRB to get approval for this study, uh, we, we arranged all this, and I tried to get the experts in the area. Jim and I did the rehab, the second group, because we both believed in that. We had, I had an ex, two excellent surgeons, Swift and, and um, another person that, uh, Templeton, that were very good at arthroscopic. And then Clyde Wilkes at the time was the god of, and I mean that respectfully, he was the person. And you wanted to get the person. Jim Swift was too for arthroscopic. I only had one because um, Wilkes said he was the only one good enough and he wouldn't be in the study unless he was the only. He wasn't going to have somebody else screw up the study. And I debated and I finally thought, okay, sure, why not? Okay, so anyway, so how did I do it? I first went to um, ethics. I went, instead of going to the IRB, I went to the head of bioethics, Art Kaplan at the university. And I sat down with him and I said, is this an ethical study? And he said, after we discussed it, and he sent me a letter that I gave to the IRB and they were very grateful. Um, I, he said, if you truly don't know which one's better and you truly tell every patient, you don't know what's better, and that there's different levels of invasiveness, and they agree to it, that's an ethical study. And so we did the study, 
And um, the, the take home from that study really is um, the, as we reported it, anytime you do a randomized clinical trial, whatever the group the patients were assigned to, you have to report on that, whether they crossed over to another group or anything. That's called intent to treat. Okay. And so the conclusion was that, um, that there was no difference between the groups. If you look at it, if you go do the secondary analysis, is, which is, well, how many people crossed over from their group? 50% of the people in the uh, medical management, that's the self-care that um, crossed over, decided on their own after three months to cross over to another treatment. Um, one to surgery and the rest to rehab. And so really, uh, what the real conclusion of this study is, is that 50% of your patients with closed lock will probably get better with minimal treatment. And about 50% of them will need additional treatments. Do they need rehab, splint, and health psychology? Well, no, we, we can't separate out those. The study would suggest you do those, but it'd be a nice study to look at the pieces. And that surgery is... Um, we were going to conclude is needed in 5% of the people. Um, but um, as the editor of the, of the journal at that time said, he didn't prove that. So we didn't say that. And so um, really, I think that in, pra in practice, what I do is I explain the study to the patients. And then I tell them that you, we can start with either um, self, uh, the medical management or we can go right into some of the rehab, and oftentimes I do add physical therapy at least. And, um, and then if not, we can expand that, or you can get a surgical console. But our 2014 paper, I don't know if you're familiar with that, on this, you should look it up, the International Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. Um, the surgeons came back and said, well, you know, we're not sure about your SSI. We're not sure about your CMI. We're not sure about that. So I said, okay, why don't we use your criteria? And so uh, that one shows that, um, no, uh, there's no difference using their criteria, which was, um, I won't go into all the details, but we also did tomograms and MRIs. And um, essentially, uh, most of the people ended up with closed locks no matter what we did. And then arthritic changes were probably, there was no statistical significant difference between groups, but numerically it was more with surgery. So uh, that kind of debunked the stop the surge, uh, arthritis. But the ultimate, dis I think the conclusion from the study is, what a remarkable joint. What an adaptable joint. My God, respect that and augment it with positive treatment and a positive attitude when you talk to patients, if you really believe their prognosis is good. I appreciate you sharing the background of that. One, one thing that has fascinated me about that particular study is the fact that you got it past the IRB to begin with. Uh, it was interesting to hear you speak about the bioethicist getting involved with that. Uh, yeah. It seems like, I mean, thank goodness we have IRBs, right? Uh, given some of our Oh yeah, the history. The unfortunate, issues, but it seems that I've always wondered how did how did they get that one past the goalie? Um, yeah, well, well, that, go that's ahead. it. Well, you know the the unfortunate thing is any study should be replicated, and this study it's impossible. You know why? 
Because you can't tell the patient there is no evidence. There's no difference between the groups. And that makes it, I mean, I'd love to see the thing redone. It was a heck of a good study. I enjoyed it. Um, but it does, it makes replication of it um, ethically challenging. So I was glad I was first. Another time, be first. There, there you go. Uh, you, what you said about your conversations with those patients, you know, you, you <laughs> said we really had to believe in it. Uh, that, yeah. that to me is quite compelling. You know, I think about a group of residents, uh, army residents, I think it was army residents that I was teaching. And we were gonna do some, some mock orofacial pain exams just to get them a little bit of experience with it. And uh, they came into the room ready to interview their, their, the person who was playing the role of the pain patient. And as soon as they got in that treatment room, uh, in typical you know, good dentist fashion, they were tossing on their masks and gloves. They were ready to dive in and do a procedure, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a good opportunity to say, hey, hold on, everybody. So let's time out. Let's slow this down. What we want to do here is not go in with a procedural mindset. Let's go in, show this patient you are ready to hear their story, look them yeah. in the eyes, actively listen to what they're saying, and then be ready to give them an explanation. Uh, that, that placebo power, or I know some authors nowadays don't even like that term placebo because of the negative connotations that have come with it. Those endogenous effects, if you will, will seem non-specific so effects. Non-specific, uh, yeah. non-specific effects. So here's a question for you. You, how do you, what do you, what have you discovered or some helpful ways we as orofacial pain practitioners can maximize those non-specific effects uh, in an ethical way? I mean, I can imagine, you know, being a snake oil salesman and telling somebody, you know, my, my magical bite guard is 100% guaranteed to cure you. Well, I can't say that, but, nope. but what can we do in your experience that can maximize the benefit of those nonspecific effects? Well, I think um, one of the things is to be on time. Uh, one is to give them time. I took a course in um, endogenous, uh, indig I'm sorry, indigenous um, uh, healers in Hawaii last year. And I read all the literature before I went. It was a wonderful experience. And do you know what one of the, they compared their uh, um, uh, indigenous uh, um, way of treating muscle skeletal disorders to the way Western. For flus and all that, they preferred Western. They preferred um, Hawaiian tradition. And you know, the bottom line was they spent more time with them. I think that's something we've lost over the years. It used to be that we would spend more time rather than, you know, what was the quality of the day rather than the quantity. Um, so I think that's one thing. The other thing is to be very open and positive and listen to what they say. And then if what, I think a key question to ask is, what do you believe should be done? And um, if they say, oh, you're the doctor, you know, uh, that can be respectful or it means it's your baby. Um, I don't care for that one, particularly usually. But if they tell me, hey, I've heard about this the acupuncture works good, or, or I've heard splints, I, I, my aunt Anne said that was the great thing on earth, et cetera, I would try to work in, if it's appropriate, um, the kind of treatment they want. Fortunately, I work in an interdisciplinary clinic where we have lots of tools in our box. We have physical therapists, 
health psychologist, neurologist, etc. And so I really try to listen to what the patient believes. And if I can work that into that, I will. The other thing is maintain a positive attitude. And if you can, a positive prognosis. And if anything, now this, this is tricky to say. The power of prognosis is very, very important. The patient wants to know where, what is the future. We're very, it's very hard for us to say that. So if you really believe, for instance, just as an uh, antidotal um, example of what I do, I'm going to give you a metro dose pack. Um, you're going to take it for six days. Usually within four to five days, you should see a, a significant reduction in pain. Uh, actually, it's probably three to four, but some people it's six and blah, blah, blah. So if it's less, that's even better. So it's, it's giving them a prognosis. How long will it take for me to get better? Acute, usually I shoot for three months, uh, chronic six months. And so, and they usually you get within that or less. And that's good because if it's over, you're done. Uh, the other thing that you might want to do to maximize the nonspecific is give them hope. Give them hope. Um, I, I think that the word placebo has gotten a bad thing, and that's why I would prefer the word nonspecific. But those are some of the things you can do for your patient so that they, they understand where they are. I will add one other thing, just as a recommendation. When your patient comes back and you've given them self-care, hopefully, and some other things, and they're coming back to see you for the first time at least, I would suggest that you never ask them how they're doing first. That instead, you always ask them, what are you doing? How's that self-care going? And if they say, yeah, you know, the heat works good, the code doesn't, da 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 I love you. I even tell them, I really like you. You're the kind of patient that's going to do really well because you're a good student. Um, the ones that say, I don't know, I didn't do it. Um, then I have to, I sometimes uh, will say even, maybe we ought to try. What do you think? Or even offer them, you know, if this isn't really what you want to do, do you want just medications? If they say yes, I say, well, you know, I don't know that, but I know a good neurologist that I can send you to, and they will take care of that. And if you don't like that model, come on back. So those are some of the things I would suggest that could be useful um, for them. But I think one of the major things is give them hope. I like those practical clinical tips. And I, I want to back up for just a moment to um, something you mentioned from your earlier experience working with some seasoned clinicians when you were uh, still still fresh yourself in the orofacial pain world. Uh, and when the world, we didn't know where we are. Sure. Well, I mean, that was back when it was like, God, the new frontier. Yeah. Well, b back in those days of the Wild West... Yeah, you had uh, you know one provider who was very oriented toward muscle and another toward yep. joint. Yeah, um, I'm curious what your perspective is on this. I hardly ever see anybody who's just one or the other strictly. Do, oh do yeah, you, do you find a lot of people who are really are truly only TMJ pain or only muscle pain, or do you see a lot of a mix with your diagnoses? <laughs> Uh, I can't remember the name of the person that coined it, but arthromyalgia. It was, uh, it was a French um, doctor of oral facial pain. started with a W. It's, it's, that's what happens when you get to be 64. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, uh, if you look at even the, any of the studies, in fact, one of them that we just sent in for publication today 
Um, that one, uh, the vast majority of patients have arthromyalgia. Absolutely. And to find the primary, I mean, there's different ways to do it. You can do some of the physical therapy, diagnostic tests of compression and, and other things that you can do. But ultimately, um, I find that most of these patients have a mixture of, of both. The time I start thinking of a primary joint problem, for instance, is when they have um, maybe painful clicking, but that's lower on the scale, but intermittent locking, or they actually have a frank closed lock or gross degenerative changes, although that's less of a, a concern. It's more when they're in the mechanical stage, it seems. You know, I think uh, I'm trying to remember the last time I saw a patient who I diagnosed as having primary joint pain who did not also have at least some degree of ipsilateral muscle tenderness to palpation. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a joint pain patient that didn't also have some, at least some level of muscle tenderness on the same side as the joint. Yeah, especially um, around the deep master, but that's, <laughs> that's a, um, very close to the joint itself. The problem is as soon as you got pain, you can start getting your receptive fields getting bigger. Well, I, I wanted to go into that for a moment with you. What do you, what do you think is going on with that? Why do so many patients with, for example, joint pain uh, end up having concomitant muscle pain? Well, you know, there's a, the old term used to be, and we didn't put it in the RDC because we didn't want to go to primary, secondary, because that became very complex. And the evidence for it was um, challenging. Um, essentially, um, I think that the reason, we used to call it muscle guarding. So if you have, a say, a closed lock patient, um, they're, they're, they, if movement hurts, and it doesn't in all of them, but if movement hurts, then it only makes sense that the muscles are going to get sore and tight in order to limit those movements. That was the theory then. And I think that is a reasonable reason why, even in a primary joint patient, you're, it's very unusual for you to not see um, um, a secondary muscle splinting. The, I think the exception might be, as I've seen a fair amount of degenerative joint disease, and especially in people my age, um, where it is very localized to the joint and it only hurts when they open wide or eat. So I think that group, you know, we have a primary joint and there doesn't seem to be that much secondary, um, maybe also because it's not continuous pain. That, that's a really interesting point. That, uh, well, perhaps as I, at some point in my life, transition to treating a different patient population, maybe I'll see more of that. Right now, um, most of the folks I see happen to be fairly young and generally yeah. healthy. So, uh, You know, usually on my Tuesday when I'm in private practice, I see everything, every, uh, patients with everything from, uh, I see a fair amount of juvenile onset rheumatoid. I work with them, with rheumatologists quite a bit. Um, I also see a, a fair amount of the um, stressed out individual, especially at this time, where they're clenching like mad, and they have arthromyalgia. I see the, the patient that, uh, especially the young ones, that come in with the intermittent locking or closed lock, which, who have, don't have a deformed disc yet, so they have something to catch on. Um, and I don't, I'm probably deformed, I certainly don't call it degeneration, hasn't remodeled um, to accommodate. It's probably a better way to put it. Certainly patients prefer that. Um, if you want to scare them, call it, yeah, that's degenerating. 
<laughs> yeah, the worst word they say actually is arthritis. It freaks them out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some changes there. It's very mild. Uh, and, and think about it, the difference between that. You put up an x-ray. Holy cow, that's the worst joint I ever saw. You just freaked your patient out. And they ain't listening to anything from there on because they're thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Um, whereas if you put it up and say, yeah, there's some gen degenerative changes, that's not unusual. Most of these patients and most patients with this do quite well. And um, why don't we talk about the things that perhaps will help you? So, you know, it's, it's leading. It's how you say it, too. Um, but I, I see the whole gamut, and then I see a fair cohort of patients, especially where my clinic's located, that are on, on Medicare and come in with degenerative joint. So you've given us there some key tips uh, for those evil doctors out there who want to maximize their patients' pain. Well, let's let's we not use say those evil. Let's just say way, I, right? I would never use the word evil. What I'll say is um, naive. Well, well, fair enough. Well, let, let, let's go into the uh, the arthromyalgia thing. I'll, I'll take a little twist on that for a minute. Oh, go ahead. Because, you know, you see um, terms in the literature over the years, right? Things yeah. like, uh, say, arthromyalgia. That's not a term that was, as you say, in the RDCTMD. It's no. not in the DCTMD. No. Uh, and then you'll see another study, maybe looking at something called myofascial pain dysfunction syndrome and you, yeah. you think wait a minute what uh, can i compare these data are are we talking about the same thing uh, it seems like the the terminology we use uh the 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 criteria we use to determine diagnoses matter a lot uh mm -hmm. right if we're not talking about the same thing how do how do we know anything and uh, even research wise how do you compare your findings different research when they use different di diagnoses Absolutely. And you've been a principal member of the group that crafted our current set of diagnostic criteria, the diagnostic uh -huh. criteria uh -huh. for temporomandibular disorders. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to hear about some of your experience with that. So the, the, sure. the original RDC TMD criteria, I think, came from the early 90s and were, were obviously a hugely important step forward. A little bad, but yeah, close. Yeah. And, and that's to work in La Roche. Yeah. Sam Dworkin and Linda Laresh. And at some point it was determined that it was time, uh, so to speak, for an upgrade. Mm -hmm. uh, so how was that point reached? And uh, what, what was, uh, I, I guess to say, how was the DCTMD intended to improve on those original RDCTMD criteria? Well, the, the um, RDC for TMD was designed by a, um, well, let me back up. It has content validity. And what I mean by that is it was designed by a group of experts reviewing all the diagnostic criteria that was available at the time and other associated literature. So literature review um, and the diagnostic criteria was done in, in a, a patient, uh, I mean, a population-based epidemiological study. So there was a number of those. So they looked at the literature, they got together um, with their expert opinion, and they all agreed on the criteria. So that's how you, you, you develop content validity. That's the lowest level of validity. Uh, when somebody says it's valid, you have to say, based on what? It's kind of like, it reminds me years ago, I was talking with John Luke, who's a dentist and epidemiologist, been on almost all my papers. He's brilliant. I love him. Talk to him today. Um, and I, I said to him years ago, 
that's not evidence-based. And he said, Eric. And anytime he said that, I knew I was going to be gently corrected. He goes, Eric, and laughed. And he said, he still does. He's just a delight. He said, everything's evidence-based. It's just some things are based on really bad evidence. And so that's why when someone says that's evidence-based, you need to ask the question, what's the quality of the evidence? Same way with validity. People throw that around. Content validity means it was developed by the experts with the known literature, just to cut to the chase. Okay? Well, that is very much a source of bias. I mean, you can't, if you're going to start and you have nothing, that's where you have to start. There's no choice. But NIH said to Sam Dworkin at the time, nice RDC. It doesn't have criterion validity. What's that? Based on objective criterion validity is that you have a gold standard. We call them reference standards, but gold standard that is considered the truth. And we develop criteria and test it against that reference standard or gold standard. Does that make sense? So a perfect example is an MRI. What, that's what we're, was our gold standard. The patients in that study got a panorax to rule out uh, um, any osseous or odontogenic lesions that were obvious on it. We test them for tooth pathology. But then they had a CT, bilateral CTs, and bilateral TMJ MRIs. The MRI was used as the gold standard, the interpretation of the MRI. Now it's getting a little fuzzier by the radiologist, but uh, they were very reliable. So if they were wrong, they were all wrong. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, the validity uh, then was uh, based on their interpretation of the MRI. And we went in clinically and examined them and rendered a clinical diagnosis based on, in this case, for interticular disorders, noise. Kind of, there's a, there's a philosophical thing there that I'm not going to get into, but it was all noise. We, we call statistics, sometimes we say there's noise in it. Okay, anyway. Uh, so anyway, what we found, for instance, with dysplasia with reduction, if, that, if you have a patient, it has poor sensitivity, around 35, 40 or something like that, really high specificity. What does that mean? Sensitivity is that uh, essentially that Let's just cut to the chase. If they have clicking joints, you can conclude that they have a disc displacement because 98% of the people without it never clicked, okay? If they have no noise, no clue because of the low sensitivity. Okay, so, but so anyway, that's how we came to sensitivity and specificity, using a gold standard. NIH absolutely wanted that to go on funding TMD um, stuff because and research because without it, they said, you're basing it on something that has poor validity. Does that make sense now? Because you're basing it on the RDC, and that has content validity, and that is poor validity. So it seems that one of the major goals of that DCTMD revision was to uh, continue to receive and probably to procure a greater amount of NIH funding for TMD research. Mm -hmm. So looking back now that we're a few years out from the official rollout of the DCTMD, do you have a sense for how well uh, that goal has been achieved to this point? Well, I would say that it's been immensely um, successful. Um, I think that part of the success was not only uh, based on the fact that we uh, um, 
had an extremely good group of people that helped us after we had done a lot of the work, all the experts on the paper. Um, but the other thing was when I presented it at NIH, I remember the head of the second head of, of NIDCR came up to me afterwards and said, I said, what did you think of it? She goes, I liked it, except one thing I really disliked. I said, oh, what was that? Why, uh, I don't like a research diagnostic criteria. If it's not good for clinical use, what good is it? I think you should have a DC for TMD. And that's actually where that came from. But as far as it's, it's, it's success, uh, it pretty much it's like the RDC, you couldn't get an NIDCR grant without using it in TMD. It's pretty much that way now, too, because um, ultimately, uh, we need to standardize the way we're diagnosing it. The DC for TMD is not the end. This is only the beginning. This is one more step on the way. I mean, ultimately, we'd like a diagnosis that has prognostic value or tells you what the etiological value of it is, or what is it going to be the treatment suggestion. So we have a long ways to go, but I think it, it accomplished what it was, and it added a lot to the RDC in the sense that not only did we have criterion validity, but it added things like the patient has to tell you that you push on them, they go, owie, that's not enough. They have to tell you, that's my pain, familiar pain. You have to replicate the pain. Their pain has to be related to jaw movement function or parafunction. Um, you know, uh, I think that's, that's an important thing is that it, it's related to those. So we added those things. And um, actually, the person that gave me some of these ideas was Chuck Green, who's a very, very uh, good friend and a very, very intellectually uh, great person. And together, we're probably two darn cynics. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> We have a great time. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think that it's been highly successful. And one of the reasons uh, it is successful is because we had so many authors. Why is that important? Um, no, don't say that one, Eric. It's important because um, if we have everybody involved, we went through a process. I mean, it took three years. We met all of us together. They suggested changes. We went back and crunched the numbers. And then at the next IADR or AADR, we got together, presented them, did some modifications, went back and crunched the numbers against the gold standard, any little changes, and came back again and had a final one. So that everybody, it was very um, democratic. We actually even voted on things. And so everybody had their input. Uh, there was a few things I influenced. Um, beyond democracy. Uh, there might have been a little tyrancy there, but um, um, you have to realize that when you're with a bunch of experts, it's like herding cats. And so it's a little challenging because they all go different directions. But I think that by doing it in a very democratic way and respecting everyone's opinion, at the end, we had something that everybody could agree with so that even if it wasn't the absolute best thing, and it isn't, I just told you that, and even if, it, if there could be some particular things changed, at least we're all agreeing on something so that we can move ahead from here. So as you said, looking at this as a starting point, there are going to be a lot of people continuing to carry this forward in years and, and decades into the future, right? Yeah. Uh, and one of the things you've already spoken about just now is, to me, it's remarkable that you can get 
34 people, which is the number of authors that are listed on the original mm -hmm. DC for TMD publication, mm -hmm. uh, you can get 34 people to agree on anything uh, is, is quite remarkable. You've already described somewhat the, the process that was involved in that. But I'm wondering, uh, do you have any other uh, insights for the people who are going to be working on these committees uh, years in the future? How do you manage a group of people like that to come to uh, any solid conclusion together? Um, any further thoughts on that? This is really more maybe a human management question than it is a, a TMD or orofacial pain question. But I think it's an important one. Well, um, first of all, show respect to everyone. Um, value there and give them time to talk. It's like a patient. Let them present it. Have a dialogue and a respectful discussion where there is disagreement. Um, but agree ahead of time that what you're going to do here is you're going to get everybody's input, but that you might not get everything you want or you believe is the truth. And I'll put little T on that, including my own. Um, but that there's a goal here that we need to have a consensus. It's kind of like a Delphi method. You familiar with those? Well, that's where, uh, anyway, back to this. Um, I, I think that those are the key things, but I think the other thing is let the science drive it. If you have an idea, well, the first time we had a lot of interesting ideas and we tested them and they didn't fly. And in some cases made things very, very bad. And so that was okay. We came back and said, you know, what we did is we applied science to these disagreement areas and this is what came out. You have to accept the science of it and realize that maybe you have something that you particularly believe is true, and certainly experts did, um, but if it doesn't really work out when you, look, when you apply science to it and you do the analyses, you have to accept that we need to move on. And you have to accept that we have to come to a conclusion at the end. Let's talk for a moment about muscle nomenclature. Oh, God. So naming muscle pain disorders seems like a real tricky thing. You look at the DCTMD's uh, criteria, and, and we have some different subcategories of myalgia there, right? right. We have local right. myalgia and myofascial pain. Uh, we have the, you know, the 2020 release now of the, the ICOP, the International Classification of Orofacial Pain, that parallels the DCTMD in many respects. But when it comes to muscle pain, there, there's, there's no local myalgia there. It's all myofascial pain. So it, it, that has the potential to continue to perpetuate some of this confusion we might have in the literature, right? About are we yeah. talking about the same condition? Yeah. So how do you think we get to a resolution on this? What should we be calling muscle pain? You know, I think that um, the group that came up with the ICOT, in fact, I gave a lecture on this at IEDR in 2019 to the group and to many of the participants. And I said, I thought it was, an, uh, if you're going to use the RDC criteria, and they essentially did, if you're going to use that, you really should use the nomenclature or this is going to confuse everybody. And uh, I said, it's actually going to be challenging for you to do it. But, you know, let's, let's go back a little bit. 
it's interesting that actually when we were doing the DC for TMD, I recommended and Rigmor uh, Jensen, who's a neurologist from Denmark and represented the International Classification of Headaches, the International Headache Society, was invited there because we invited people from all different. And uh, her, she and I talked ahead of time. We did, did a little bit of that going on. And um, we both recommended that we apply this to the DC. And it was voted down. So it went. That we apply the, the IHS. This is the, the ICOT is the IHS criteria. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I think it's really good, but um, some of the problems with it is the myofascial pain, but other issues with that is, you know, if you ask a patient, I mean, in the last, have you had more than 15 days of pain in the last three day, months? I mean, that's a challenging question, um, you know, for them to remember just recall bias. And it hasn't been tested. How would you test it? Well, one way would be to give a group of patients a diary and have them fill it out every day for thirty for three months, and then go back. But they don't get to keep it, and go back after three months and say, "Tell us what it is," and then compare what the truth was. I mean, there's easy ways to do this. They haven't done any of that yet. They haven't done the reliability studies. This is not ready for clinical use. Um, and I think that uh, I think it's a good idea. I'm actually supportive of the idea. Um, we published a paper actually a few years ago using the criteria for TMD uh, people that had TMD headaches, and the people that were um, considered the 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 more the more frequent, the chronic ones, more than 15 days over more than three months, they had much more uh, psychosocial and behavioral factors. So they were more complex. But all in all, I think to answer your question about muscle, you know, even if we aren't got it just straight right now, don't confuse people. Call it myalgia, and you can call it infrequent, frequent, and uh, chronic. Um, infrequent, frequent, episodic, slash episodic and chronic. And use those words, don't call it all chronic. Infrequent chronic is an oxymoron, uh, which is what they use. Follow the IHS exactly. Follow the DC exactly. And if over time it changes, fine. So myalgia should have these different diagnoses and the, so, uh, of infrequent, frequent, and uh, chronic. And so should these subgroups, in my opinion. And now we got it straight. Now we're talking the same. Because otherwise... If we're going back to what the RDC was, everything was myofascial pain there too. And so, hey, if we want, now I will say this right away, what is the validity of dividing them into these groups? We actually have a paper we're gonna have coming out here. And what we'll show is um, the people that have myofascial pain with referral, they have a lot more psychosocial and behavioral factors. Oh, psychosocial, I didn't look at behavioral. And their PPTs are different than the local myologists and the um, myofascial pain without referral, suggesting that there is clinical utility to using it. But we need this evidence. We need to be doing these studies. And let's not keep the nomenclature the same, especially if you're going to use the criteria. 
Where can we look to find that paper that is uh, going to be published on myofascial pain with referral and psychosocial factors? Oh, that one. Well, I have a person that's finishing it for their thesis from our database. Um, I would guess that we're still a number of months out before we'll submit it, and that's a number of months before it's accepted. You're killing me here, Dr. Schiffman. I want, I want that paper. Too bad. <laughs> Speaking of somebody, I mean, don't you think? Have you? I mean, when you have a patient that is referring all over the place, don't they tend to be a little more complex? I think that's very fair to say. And one of the reasons I'm excited to read your paper is I'd, I'd love to see some data to actually back up that notion that I I think I share with you. Yeah, yeah. No, I was I found that really interesting, and we and I mean, there's so much data and so little time. I just feel. Anyway, sounds like a good problem to have. Um, well, you know, as a researcher, yeah, as a clinician, it's frustrating. And I wear both hats. Well, there's probably even another hat that you wear to some extent. And uh, you said you were the first uh, resident, orofacial pain resident from Minnesota, and yeah. you've been involved with training many more of them. Yeah. Uh, I've had the privilege of getting to know some of those folks. Uh, those are great people. You, Minnesota is pumping out some great clinicians and great researchers in orofacial pain. Uh, and that's awesome. Uh, so yeah. I'd love to hear any insights that you have. Uh, what are some keys to helping residents develop into strong orofacial pain practitioners and researchers? Well, I think some people will disagree on this. Uh, everybody has their method. Um, and I think that's fine. I think that giving them a good didactic background is essential um, and educating them in the biopsychosocial model. Um, we, uh, I'm not doing it anymore, but I used to have a three-day course called the TMD mini residency. Um, and um, I'm not doing it anymore, but uh, we would have clinicians come in and physical therapists and, the, and then the residents would be in there too. And we'd have three days of didactic, of diagnosis, have the psychologist and the physical therapist lecturing, have them in clinic, et cetera. So I think giving them a good didactic background. My own theory and, my, and the residents that are under me will um, probably confirm this in maybe not the most positive way is I like the Socratic method. I like to ask people questions. I don't do it to embarrass them. I don't do it in front of the patient. But I do, uh, once we go back afterwards, I like to really ask them to get down to the bottom line of why did you come to this conclusion? What is your rationale for it? And let me help you understand how that is. And also, I think one of the things we have to teach them is how to talk to the patients. The words we use are so critical. Well, I'm going to throw one more question at you, Dr. Schiffman. And okay. this, if I could get you to drill down on just one question, if you could snap your fingers and you could magically have the answer to any one question about any facet of orofacial pain, what question would you want to have answered? I would like to know, what is it that causes patients Oh, the ultimate philosophical question is, why does chronic pain exist? If it, doesn't, um, if it doesn't serve a function and it isn't necessarily tied to pathology, what, what is, what is, why do we have that? And, you know, you could say is it of aging, but we see chronic pain in young people. What, what possible biological evolutionary reason do we have 
chronic pain. Practical question on that same front is, um, what is it that, what are the factors that predict a patient going from acute to a chronic condition? And once they're there, how can you treat that patient in order to stop it? I think that's one of our biggest questions that we have right now. Now, I, I'm going to, that's the big picture. I'll actually throw in one little last thing here, and that is, you know what? I think the area of orofacial pain ought to have a darn good basis, uh, and, and it should be evidence-based with good evidence, high-quality evidence, of what is the effectiveness of splint therapy. We are, I mean, it's, it, it, it's essential that we determine this, not only for the good of the patient, but also um, when, when you have um, meta-analysis done and it's always, we need more evidence, we need a better, I mean, it's, it, it's so that you, it's, it's tiring to read these things. Um, but the, because you, you, you know the problem. In fact, I was reading a, I mean, I was listening to a webinar the other day about, you know, um, we got enough meta-analysis, we need more data. Um, and, and I would appreciate that. And I would say that that is the one question because it's a significant cost to our patients. It has some side effects. I think it has good therapy in the right patient. And that's why um, when I took over this position that I have now as director of clinical research, I decided I was going to finish my last study. My last study is looking at the incidence. It's going to finish in September of jaw problems after wisdom teeth removal compared to a device I made, and I'm not going to go into it because then we have conflict of interest and all that, but compared to whether a patient's getting held or some type of device holds their jaw that's stable, in my opinion, my bias world. Um, but nonetheless, my, my, I think that the last study, I'm, I'm almost ready to do it, and I'm talking with NIH about it, is why don't we do a nice randomized clinical trial using a practice-based research network like I did with my last study with the group at AAOP? And really determine what is the effectiveness of this thing that we use ubiquitously. And actually, NIH is darn interested in it. I did do a survey with the group, and there wasn't a real lot of enthusiasm about that, although the group was very good about being enthusiastic about the last study about TMD pain and following the patients over six months, et cetera. Um, but I think that's really the one piece that, you know, if you want to look at it not only from the patient's perspective, but you might also look at it from the perspective of you doing something highly ethical, but also, you know, the insurers are going to wonder what the hell's going on? What the heck is going on here? And so there's lots of reasons we'll, why. We'll beep that one out in the family friendly version of the podcast. Okay. I'm sorry about that. But it, the bottom line is if this is, a, if, a, uh, if this is a ubiquitous treatment that we're doing, we ought to know what it's. Um, uh, what its effectiveness is. And in fact, it's actually a very easy thing to do in a sense from my perspective is pick the patients where you think is going to be the best outcome. Because if it don't work there, forget it. Anyway, that's my thoughts. And I stand behind them. All right. <laughs> Not only thoughts, but philosophical musings. Oh, what the heck. Dr. Eric Schiffman is professor and director of clinical research at the University of Minnesota School of Dentistry. 
Dr. Schiffman, thank you so much for joining us today on the AAOP podcast. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.